There probably aren't a huge amount of people in the world that have gone from being imprisoned by cannibals to photographing rock stars and smoking cowboys, then to set up a non-governmental organisation dedicated to providing relief, education and to support children and families in need in Cambodia. However, there is one human that could legitimately fill out his resume with those life experiences. Hannes Schmidt is known as a photographic artist, adventurer and painter, also known as the Marlborough Man, and he has lived that very story. Impact Joe Appleby was fortunate enough to spend some time with him as he shares his remarkable story. So I am delighted uh, today to have the opportunity to have a conversation with Hannah Schmidt, who is uh, a co-founder and um, executive director and chairman of an organisation called Smiling Gecko. That is an NGO that was set up in 2014 as an NGO. And its purpose is to provide support and education and employment for a community in Cambodia um, who are living in extreme poverty. Although there's a lot of information out there in terms of how many people in, Cam in Cambodia live in extreme poverty, it's suggested that about 16 million live on less than $2 a day. So Hannes um, met with one person on a walk one evening that completely transformed his life and the way in which he wanted to support this community. But I hope you don't mind, Hannah, but you're not a spring chicken. You've had a rich life before you stumbled across um, Smiling Gecko. And I'm really interested in your journey and what brought you to, to Smiling Gecko. And, and I'd like us to reflect a little on that. And at Impact, we talk a lot about leadership um, and what it takes to be a leader. Um, there's many words that we can associate with you, Hanas, an adventurer, a traveller, an explorer, a visionary, and uh, um, a, a photographer, of course, uh, a rock and roll photographer. Um, but, but I would just like us to think about the essence of, of what brought you to, to Smiling Gecko and, and your journey. So welcome, Hanas. And please tell us a little bit about about your story and your journey? Well, I um, maybe should start at the very beginning. I'm uh, born 1946 in Switzerland, uh, a very poor family. And, uh, well, at uh, that time, life was different than today. So it was quite hard, hardship. We were four kids. Uh, uh, we had to work to, to get food. And I, I uh, actually, when I was very little already, uh, my job was to become goat Peter. So in the summers, I was in the mountains and I was hurting sheep and goats and uh, for these we got uh, butter and uh, actually cheese uh, from from the farmers and I still remember this time very much how 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 it was for me that time I had one pair of shoes and this was only allowed to wear in the winter in the summers there was actually no shoes and you know we were living on the Alps and you know when you get washed yourself uh, every two weeks that was already a luxury <laughs> but uh, for me one one thing who was very important when I went up to the 
mountain they called Selun it's 2000 meter high and when I looked to the south from there I was so curious what's behind this mountain mm. I was sitting there dreaming uh, and I was so curious because for me the world was very small that yeah. time right mm. and uh, well um, the same was with my schooling um, you know I was not really good at school and um, uh, well uh, when I reached third grade I catched a, a tuberculosis and that means for three years I was in hospitals and uh, recreation areas so I had very little school so then when I finally came, finished my sixth grade, right, I, I had uh, another two years of secondary and then I had to choose uh, where do my life goes. And uh, for me, everything was so so tight, so close. Mm. And uh, well, I had to go to these uh, teachers and then he offered me three different things, uh, bricklayer, plumbers and electrician. And uh, this is nothing of this I really wanted because I thought this is like it's a boring thing because I don't know, I was living in a different world world from my mind and well then I used a little game you know like where you start at the beginning I put my finger on the electrician and I start my little talking game and I knew uh, that I ended up at the same so I was choosing to become an electrician and he actually questioned if I have the potential to become an electrician you know very funny I give you three kinds of things to choose yeah. and at the end he questions if that Last part, I wondered if I would actually able to do, but then uh, my family we moved to Zurich, and uh, and there I, I got a job in a, a company. And I during my four years of apprenticeship, I think after two years, I thought that I think there should be more for me. So I started evening schools and uh, went to the universities and uh, improved. So I became at the end uh, an electrical engineer. And uh, then also I spend all my free time still in the mountains with my friends. And one day, one day, uh, we decided that the world now really is becoming too small for us. We know everything at the, every mountain, every restaurant, even all the beautiful girls, we know. So it was time to move. So uh, uh, but the friend of mine, he is, was a carpenter, right? He, he, he said, oh, if we go to the uh, embassy in, in Bern of the South Africa, uh, it's for free. They, they fly us to Cape Town and to Johannesburg and uh, you know they need for they need good uh, professional workers so we went there and we filled out the forms and lucky us three months later we were sitting in an airplane and flying to Johannesburg and, and what year was that how old were you when you set upon well, this I, I arrived in uh, 1968 actually in uh, in Cape Town you know and uh, yeah 2022 20, 22 right it's quite a thing to do that at that age. Yeah, yeah, well, okay. You know, at that time, it was different. Also, my family, they went really not happy about me going so far away, going to Africa. Oh, my God, this was all these kind of things. But I felt like I had to go, and I was not alone. We were four guys together. We went, you know, our adventure to yes. go there, right? Yeah. But then Johannesburg didn't really fit to us, and uh, we went to Cape Town. And uh, in Cape Town, it was a bit more relaxed, everything. And uh, I got a job from a German electronical electrical company, AEG Telefunken, it was called. So I got a job to help to build mm -hmm. a radar and and, uh, and, and and the radio station of the Cape of Good Hope. And uh, well, 
the problem was a bit, we were all there, but the equipment never came. Uh, we had to, at that time, they were like cop- copper cables, very big ones. Right. But when they arrived in the harbor, the, 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 the natives, uh, they cut it up and they made jewelry out of it. So actually, we never got our cables. <laughs> so it was very boring. We got huge salaries, but we had no material to work with. So then I got very bored and I bought a camera. And I started taking pictures. And this was amazing for me because uh, nobody asked who I am. You know, I just was a photographer. Right. So I had access to a lot of things, District 6, where it was only black. It was apartheid at that time. So I started to be fascinating with it. And I also wanted to show my family how the world looks like in Cape Town, right? Mm. But then after one year, I thought this is not my life. So I decided to travel become a photographer, right? So <laughs> in the meantime, I studied a little bit of uh, photography and art at the university, but it was very boring because I thought that I learned how to make a picture, but they only told me the history of the picture. I was not interested. I didn't want to learn anything about history. I wanted to know, how do I do it? What, what do I do wrong? You know, what do I have to use, right? So finally, I had to learn myself, and I started traveling to Africa, Rwanda, Burundi, Kenya, Tanzania. By yourself at this point? By myself, yes. And uh, while then I was running out of money, I was helping to repair a generator or something like this. For an electrician that time, there was always a job to do somewhere. Right. right? So it actually, it helped you. Being an electrician did actually enable you to, yeah, 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 to yeah, make yeah. your make your way around. But, but the funny thing was in, in, in the 1969, there was actually no laboratories uh, anywhere in Africa. So I had to send my films home to my sister in this yellow Kodak sessions. And uh, while my sister then sent it on to Kodak, but uh, she would never return the picture. She would write letters and, uh, you know, post study So every two months I got a letter. We said, oh, Hannes, I think that was a good one, but the rest <laughs> looks very bright and very dark. <laughs> So for a period nearly of four years, I never saw a picture of my... That's know, just so fantastic. Was... But it was the access that the camera gave you, the permission that it gave you to travel, right? Well, I didn't care so much about these pictures mm. because, you know, I had that sensation, the feeling, the curiosity when I pressed this little button. So I had my pictures in my mind and I actually moved away more and more and more from the actual photograph at the end, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so then after this period, I came back to Switzerland and, well, um, I was curious because I thought, wow, I did really big pictures, really amazing stuff. But then my sister gave me a couple of hundred of these yellow boxes, you know, with these uh, chromes in it. And uh, I said, what is this? She said, that's your photograph. I said, what? So I took them out and I had to go on the window and look through the window on my pictures, you know? I didn't have a light desk or anything. But I must say she was right. Uh, there was not really much use to do there. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably good that you didn't get those photos because you might have thought, I'm actually not very good at this. But, you know, ignorance is bliss, right? You didn't have them. You didn't know. Just kept on traveling. Just kept on traveling. And then, you know, the funny thing was that I started to understood that I probably have to learn more. And then I got offered a job in Singapore by a, a Swiss company. And, uh, of course, I took the job because I said, oh, let's go down there and practice a little bit more, right? And maybe there I can see my photograph. But then after a couple of months being in Singapore, I was very bored. I thought, no, this is not my life. So I read about the Orangutan Rehabilitation Center in Bandaraja in Sumatra. So I packed my backpack and I moved there and uh, living about one year with Orangutans in the jungle. My job was uh, because they came out of 
if so they were like uh, in little zoos private zoos or when the mother got killed by logging the baby got shipped to us so my job was to teach them what they eat and how they build their nest and the whole thing so sometimes I was two three months without any contact to other people so just my contact were the beautiful orangutan women you know it was a it was a beautiful story there right where I discovered and at the end I never knew uh, who did learn more from whom did I learn more from them and uh, or, or or it was the opposite because what I really learned was uh, survive yes. in the jungle you know and uh, that was a, an amazing um, I also had pictures of that time it was a special really special period for me after that I went back to Singapore and I was sitting on the porch of the Raffles Hotel uh, and um, well, I was fascinating. I was reading in the in the uh, Singapore Straits, the daily newspaper, the story about Michael Rockefeller. So Michael Rockefeller was an anthropologist. 1961, he moved to Irian Jaya. Irian Jaya is the Indonesian part of Papua New Guinea, and he started start to study the life of the Danis and Lanis, cannibal and Stone Age people, right? Mm. And he disappeared. So the, the Rockefeller family was sending expedition after expedition and they talked to the government and everybody wanted to search for him, but they couldn't find him. There was like funny stories of the, the cannibals have eaten him and all these kind of things. And I thought, oh, that's an interesting story. If they haven't found him, why don't I go and look for him? Maybe I can find him. <laughs> <laughs> so Maybe my I, curiosity I, will take me there. Yeah, I, I, I had a little <laughs> bit to do research and then I went to Jakarta to file uh, for a permit, but they wouldn't give me the permit. Uh, but that time, a no was not necessarily a no for me. So I took a job on a Chinese boat as a chef. And uh, with this boat, I traveled to the uh, South China Sea, to the mm. Molok Islands, Ambon, Zorombiak, Chayapura. I got off the boat, packed my backpack and started hiking up to the mountains alone. So I know the mountains are very, very, very secluded. It's uh, nearly 4,200 meter high. And so, you know, you just find your way. There's no road, there's no path. So you have to find your way somehow to get up there. So usually what the best is to follow on a river because the rivers come from the mountain and they flow down to the ocean. So usually the river brings you up to the top, whatever, you know. So, well, it took me a while, nearly three months till I reached more or less a valley called the Balin. And uh, well, then they found me one morning. They were standing in front of me uh, naked uh, with their penis skirts over their penis and uh, uh, full of mud and uh, they start shooting at me. So I had several arrows sticking in my leg, in my chest, and uh, so they were hunting me down, beating me up. And at the end, I was so scared, I didn't know what to do anymore. I was crying, begging for my life, and then they pulled me on my legs through bushes and stones and rocks, and they dropped me into the pig stall. So from then on, I had to live with the pigs. And every couple of days they took me out, they were beating me up again, and I was like begging for my life, crying, right? And they back dropped me in again, so after a while, the beating stopped and uh, I've been put in another pig stall and there I had to share my life with the, with the women. Big women were living with the pigs, men were living in the man house. And uh, well, women were even uh, when it was necessary uh, feeding the pigs on their breast. When uh, my mother saw didn't have enough milk or was a problem of the mother's side dying, then they were in charge to feed the little piglets so they, they can grow, right? So. Well, I learned a little bit of the language with the women, and it's not very complicated. Uh, kai kai means mean, uh, kai kai kao kao means uh, eat sweet potatoes. <laughs> so you cannot have really a big conversation there, but <laughs> at least you, you, you know what to talk about. And our daily diet was actually sweet potatoes, or when 
the men who were hunters and uh, warriors, when they catched a little uh, tree bear or some some rats and mouses, we were digging them into the ground uh, till uh, they were like rotten and they produced maggots and we were eating the maggots because the maggots had a lot of uh, protein and uh, actually out of a little rat, you could produce about 10 times the value of, uh, of, of nutrition. So that's what they mainly were living on. But they were very... It's always difficult to say they were not primitive. Primitive is something different because uh, they were able to survive in a kind of an environment where we never had a chance, mm. right? Mm. But they didn't know the wheel. They didn't know the pot. They didn't know how to, to boil water. So um, everything was drinking was actually like a dog kneeling down and uh, shifting a water in your mouth. And they had their own rules and regulations. And uh, it was um, a very tough time for me because uh, I was more or less uh, their prisoner at that time. How long, Hanas, did you spend as their prisoner? Well, I was a total of nearly seven months I spent up there. And then uh, one day I just left uh, because uh, they had they lost interest on me. I was not allowed to go into the man's house. I was not uh, be allowed on the, on, the, on the man's island. There was a lot of incidents because women had to chop off part of the part by finger. If somebody died or something as a grief, uh, as a kind of a, of a you know, but participant of a, of a grief, the women, they had to chop off part by finger. So the women only had the stamps here. They didn't have really the finger in front of it anymore. So I tried to interfere when some of the girls were quite young and then, well, it leads again that they were beating me up. And uh, so, you know, because uh, you could not even inter- interfere, even um, they didn't have the understanding that what they did was probably not the right way to do because uh, that there was no school, there's no education, there's no nothing up there. It's just survival, pure survival. Mm-hmm. Also, their age span is a maximum of 30 years. They look with 30 years. They look like they are a hundred years of age in, in our time. And actually, it's normally when you go back 2,000 years into the time of the Romans. I mean, that time, average lifespan was 40 years. And the Romans had good nutrition mm-hmm. up there. Of course, um, you know, that's, that's a different kind of thing. There was a lot of uh, incest because, um, you know, uh, they were all lyrics through their through their wars they had among the tribes, you know, they couldn't really go for. So, so I mean, there was a lot of like in Britain. And that's why also for them, I was not something special. It was a lot like red hair, white, blue eye, uh, uh, children up there or people up there. Very sensitive, of course, mm. to light and everything. But for them, I was just another albino. That's it, you know, so... So you left there, managed to make your way down back to the river. How did you how did you get back to, to Switzerland? No, I, I well when I left I followed the Balimda River. It's quite a long way because I knew this gonna lead me to the coast to the other side. I came on from uh, Chayapura and this led me to the other side because that was supposed to be the part Michael Rockefeller took. So right, I followed okay. the river down and when I came down into the swamps and on the coast I got uh, catched by the Kuruwais. The Kuruwais is another tribe, they have a different type of, of cannibalism and they live on these 30, 40 meter high trees, uh, because the reason why they live up there is because the boars, the wild porks, right, okay. uh, they're very aggressive. They can kill you, right? And uh, well, then I got very ill. I had uh, I, I couldn't eat anymore. I had uh, high fever. I had typhus. I had amoeba, and uh, so malaria. I had nearly everything you can get. So by the way, by then I was more or less about 30, 32 kilos. 
And uh, by a, an accident, I don't know what happened. I got picked up by a missionary in a boat and he took me to the coast. And from there, they flew me to uh, Australia and then home to Switzerland, where they put me in the hospital. And I spent about 11 months in the hospital here in Switzerland to to uh, recover because I couldn't eat anymore. I, I was only bone. I couldn't stand. I had no muscle power at all. So... But I, maybe I'm a strong nature, you know. I'm what born in a time. strong nature are you, <laughs> and, yeah. so, and, uh, and uh, well, um, yeah, I survive, you know. So, can you remember so. that journey at all? Can, can you, because you were so ill and so frail and so sick? Yeah, it's yeah. Incre- well, I, I, I can feel as if a lot of things is just kind of in a little cloud, and and uh, it was very terrible for me that time. And but I, I can, yes, I can, I can not every detail, but I can remember I remember the pain I remember it was a big suffering for me it was not really easy you know for me to go there but then on the other hand you know in a white beautiful clean hospital bed in Switzerland uh, where you had all these nurses and doctors taking care about you um, it was an very, very much easier than what I actually uh, had before. Yes. What I had to live through before. So in, in terms of age then, were you around early 30s at that time? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, I, it was, at the end, uh, I was, uh, it, it became 76, right? Okay. And uh, so by 77, I was more or less uh, able to back, back on my feet. Right? And then you took uh, a really easy transition from that experience to being, a photographer for, for, for world famous rock bands for the next eight yeah, years of your life. Yeah, I mean, the yeah, transitions yeah. are phenomenal. Tell me a little bit about about how you. Well, I think it's very funny how life plays uh, the game, right? And I think what's uh, what I always was. I was very open to anything. What's coming up? Right. I was not I was not focused on something. I didn't have a plan. I I didn't lay out a plan, you know, what I do when I'm 40, when I'm 50, when I'm 65, I'm a pensioner. That was not what I had in mind. Well, I had a friend and he worked for a record company for Phonogram. He was artist and record, and uh, he was the only guy I knew from my school time. And he came and visited me about once in a time. And then when I got better, he said, Oh Hannes, that is I'm in charge of a band, you know, the band is called Status Quo, and uh, there is a big concert in Halley they're going to be 10,000 people and have you ever been on a concert I said oh god no idea he said oh why do you want to join I said oh okay okay <laughs> so I joined I, I took my little camera and I went there and it was absolutely crazy because it was like uh, my cannibals you know they were like shaking with their fists and they shake their hands with their hair and the music was loud, it was wrong, it was like uh, totally, and, and, and the people were screaming down there, and I said, what the hell is going on here, right? So I snapped a couple of pictures, and then he invited me to go for dinner with, uh, with the band. So uh, we went there, we were a bit early in a hotel, and... Uh, so then the band came in slowly, and then uh, Rick Parfit, Francis Rossi, another guy, the long hair, they walked in and shaked their hand and said, who is this guy? And then my friend Louis said, oh, he's a photographer. I said, oh, get out of here, get out of here. We don't want any photographers on the dinner table. Go out here. And then my friend said, no, 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 he's a crazy guy. He used to live in cannibals and eat rats and mouses and beetles. <laughs> so, of course, what was the subject of that dinner, you know, was my story. I had to tell them, right? 
And then after the dinner, the, the, the manager came and asked me, did you really talk pictures of cannibals? I said, yeah, kind of. I said, then you have to take pictures of my band. So the next day I had a photo session with this band, right? And uh, I never had a photo session with the band. But for them, I was not a photographer, you know. They were like going crazy in the hotel room. They took their shirts out, putting champagne on their head, took the curtains down and were screaming, you're a cannibal, don't eat us, don't eat us, you're a crazy man. <laughs> so I just snapped away my pictures. And two days later, I went to the manager and showed my picture. And he was so excited. He said, you know, Hannes, they hate photographers. This is amazing. I've never seen pictures like this. Do you want a job? Do you want to join us? We need a guy like you. <laughs> so I said, well, yeah, actually, I have nothing to do. I just recovered and why not, right? And it was horror for my mother because next morning there was this tour bus, black windows, and these guys, you know, with leather jackets come out, put the finger up and say, hey, you, mother F, you you come with us. And okay, thanks God, my mother spoke any English, so she <laughs> did understand what it meant. But she said, why are you going with these crazy people? I said, well, I'm just going to join them for a little while. Well, the little while became eight years, 257 rock bands from A.A.B.A. to Z.Z.A.P.A where I joined us, their personal photographer on their tour, also privately in their home. And this was probably the most crazy journey for me uh, to being also in that extreme, from one extreme, Absolutely. being in the jungle, living there, mm. very, say, uh, uneducated people, and then uh, suddenly being with all this rock star, where I very often felt that they are not actually much more educated than my Danis and Lanis, right? <laughs> they came out of very poor backgrounds, you know? And uh, But I think I also, what I was interested in, it was not the music. I didn't care about music. Sometimes I fall asleep in the concert because you know, I just was I so love bothered. that. But there was maybe one guy I really loved a lot, and uh, his name is Meatloaf, right? And, right, uh, yeah. There's probably a lot of concerts I not even took a picture because if this monster is like 150 kilo human being on stage rocking, you know, like crazy. And we had oxygen tent behind the stage, you know, in case he is really collapsing. So everybody kept, or me, I always kept one camera ready with one roll of film in case he collapses. So at least we have a picture of him. <laughs> But otherwise, you know, from Supertram to ACDC to uh, The Who, everything it was okay. But for me, the fascination was actually the audience. I have a lot of pictures of the audience. You know, this was liberation. Uh, this That time, that whole generation were stood up with this kind of performances, with the way they got dressed, uh, with the way they showed themselves against their very conservative parents. Mm. And that was fascinating for me. I was interested on that. And also the change when the rock bands came from nothing, some were from Scotland, from the Highlands, you know, never been actually out somewhere. And suddenly they stand in an audience of like two, 5,000 people when they reach up their arm, the whole audience yeah. responded. That was power. This yeah. was something incredible. How do they deal with this power? That was, that's why I was in rock and roll. So, well, eight years later, I stepped out of it because I thought I had enough. There was nothing new for me. It was repetition, you know, like uh, joining the band, flying somewhere, uh, going with the tour bus, stay in a hotel, have a warm-up gig and then have a gig. It was just like the same again and again mm. and again and again. There were just different people, but there was nothing nothing for me anymore. And then at, at that time, we had, uh, this was already uh, 84, uh, right? Uh, uh, there was a very famous uh, German uh, from Eastern Germany. Uh, Nina Hagen was her name. She was a punk rocker. 
and uh, I worked a lot with her. She was totally crazy. You know, she was someday she was a vampire and she died on the street. And and uh, when you start taking care of her, she's jumping up and saying, you crazy fool, you know, you know, I'm a vampire and I die every day. Once she died on me on Times Square, <laughs> when we were in the photo shoot at Times Square, she died on the street and I called the ambulance. <laughs> I got really kind of uh, kicked my ass, you know, because she said, you're such an idiot. You know, I die once a day. <laughs> No, you understand. You know, I said, no, I don't, I'm not a vampire. I don't understand. Right? So, so, but then when I left rock and roll, I wanted to do something else. And uh, I got a call from a German magazine, actually the version of GQ in America. Okay. Transformed, uh, it's called Men of Vogue, uh, Men's yeah. Vogue. And uh, they wanted Nina on the cover. And uh, she was uh, in London and shooting with Patrick de Machelier, a very famous fashion photographer. But after 10 minutes, they had a big fight because he treated her like a model. And she said, I'm not a model. I'm a rock star. I want my photographer. So there was a dilemma because me, I never did any kind of fashion picture. So, so, but they said either it's Hannes or nobody. So then the German man of all had to send me to London and I had really no idea about fashion pictures. So, well, we went to her washing saloon, you know, and uh, to the laundry and then she took her clothes off halfway naked and then she was washing her clothes, right? And then at home, she was just on her, with her bra, uh, putting milk in a, in a jar. And uh, then we stole a baby on the street from a guy because <laughs> she kept that really kind of fat looking kind of baby, right? So it was an absolutely anti-fashion mm. story. It had nothing to do with fashion. And then I delivered my picture and they actually first, they said, oh, what is this? And then they discovered that it's something different, right? So then they printed the story, came out. Uh, well, it got a lot of uh, reviews. And then the women woke came and they asked me to do a story for them. They hear that I'm a crazy mountain climber and skier and I don't know what. And they asked me if I can do their, their winter story. I said, yeah, it's okay. You know, it was already, uh, it was in September. And uh, I said, what the hell do I do? So I looked at magazines and, you know, all these girls always posing. Oh, my shoe and oh, like this. And there was always blue sky. I said, this is not how I experience winter. So I called my friend. He was a very famous uh, mountain guide. Uh, unfortunately, later on, he had a big accident. He died climbing. And uh, so I said, can I climb the Eiger Sanction? He said, are you totally nuts? I mean, this is a 2,000 meter sheer face. This is one of the dangerous north faces. I said, yeah, but there is a train going through. If they open a window there, we can go out from there. And then we just put in fixed rope about 800 meters and we pull the models up, you know, ice field one, ice field two. And somehow we get them over the top and then we go back down again. Well, we went to the to the people around the railway and they thought for this crazy, but they saw maybe this is a good PR for them. <laughs> so yes. yeah, that's what we did. We climbed the Eiger Sanction with a girl and two main models. She was Norwegian, so I selected mountain climb because I didn't care how they look like. They just need to have to be able to climb, right? Yes. And uh, this story, you know, was absolutely incredible. They were packed with ice. There were avalanches coming down. And I was hanging on a 200-meter rope because how do you take a picture on a sheer wall? Sure. Right? So I had to push myself off so that I fly around. And that's how <laughs> I take my picture. Well, finally, we made it. We made it to the top. We made it down again. And then actually the German walk first didn't want to print the picture because uh, Mr. Kuhn, he was the, the, uh, the, the owner of the magazine or the publisher, he said, this has something to do with Vogue. This is uh, like a mountaineering magazine and, and I'm risking people's life and all this crazy yeah. thing. And then I told him, uh, maybe you will remember one day my words when cars are four-wheel driven in the cities, 
people walking out with mountaineering shoes and have goose feather jackets like they would climb Everest. He said, oh, no, this is going to never happen, never happen. Well, two years later, Prada came out with the first goose feather pictures. Dr. Martin became actually the, the absolutely top shoes, right? And cars slowly, not only Land Rover started mm. to have four-wheel drive. Yeah. So I was really, maybe my vision was very much ahead. And this was leading me into the fashion industry. Uh, a week after publication, I was in Paris with Kenzo and he was sending me to Jamaica into the Hurricanes to shoot his fashion. And from then on, he went on Gucci, Prada, Armani, Vogue, L. Harpers. I was never a fashion photographer, you know, but I was able to tell a true story or a fake story making, looking true, right? And this again then led me to big advertisement campaigns. First, I was with camel with a lot of cigarettes. I was mm. the cigarette guy because they needed somebody who can fabricate the reality, right? Because it's all about feeling. It's about, you know, when you hail in, you know, fun, funny enough, I never was a smoker. I always had the batches on me, uh, little buttons that say, thank you for not smoking. But that time it was not that it's just started about uh, the health issue of yeah. cigarettes and stuff like this. But then I came uh, one of the top Marlboro shooter and Marlboro was very interesting for me because it was far beyond the cigarette. This was about American history, about American color. Now, in 1955, uh, this cigarette was actually developed as a women's cigarette. It didn't work. I went to Leo Burnett, and Leo Burnett changed it into a male cigarette, and he thought that the symbol should be masculine, it should be unique, it should be American, so he was choosing the cowboy. Right, and of course. course. Since 50, 55, 56, 57, they photographed this already, but then they called me in because they said, we want something new from you, we want something different, and every picture you deliver has to be a picture of art. Well, I had actually no idea. So I was taken on some test shoots and I had a good feeling with the cowboys. They were the best cowboys in the world. They were not models. They were real cowboys. They were bronco riders, bull riders. You know, uh, they were breeding horses. I mean, this is really great. And it was, it was a hierarchy, you know, Billy, Chuck, you know, which were the cowboys and which are the wranglers. Cowboys always had to be one head taller. They always had to be in front of riding in the front, walk in the front. It was orchestrated wow. really from, yeah. from nothing. There was, when we came, there was nothing. I was building everything. I was building ranch, faces of ranches, lakes, uh, rivers. I was building everything myself. And there, by an accident, I discovered sunset and sunrises. So I came with very reduced pictures, actually just like cutouts, you know, the black cowboy in front of a beautiful red sky and mm. this world worldwide. So I was nearly 10 years. I was the main shooter. And uh, that uh, that was very interesting for me uh, also to learn to work on an account where you spend five, six, eight, ten millions dollars for five-day shooting, right? I had sometimes 250 staff. I had 600 horses. That means 100 trailers, right? And I need corrals. I need to feed. I need to, you know, so we had sometimes we had to run a herd of 16 horses. You cannot just bring 16 horses. They have to run together for nearly one year. So it, 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 it crystallizes the lead horse and then you only have to guide the lead horse to do your pictures right and sometimes it took you four or five times till you had the picture because you know you wanted the mountain you wanted the sun coming up you wanted the horses going from but everything was set up and then suddenly a big cloud came in front of the of the of the, of the sun and then you then you know you blew already another five hundred thousand dollars for the one picture and you never 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 made it right so so but it was a huge challenge and for me i was the conductor yeah you see i it was all in my hand it was a big responsibility 
And then from, from that, actually, I went into the arts. I had enough of it after 10 years. It was also, I had it. There was nothing new. Besides, there were more and more restrictions. Uh, what do you have for advertisement? You know, uh, you had to, the, the advertisement board had to be so and so many miles away from the highway, from school. In the cities, they had to change to black and white and mm. stuff like this, right? And I was developing these images. Uh, I hardly had any people smoking on my images because uh, I was in a guy rides on the horse, he doesn't smoke. I mean, there is certain moments somebody smoke, right? Uh, even as a non smoker, I knew that, right? Mm. And I always hear that, I was sorry to say. I was here from smoker that the best cigarette is after sex, but I couldn't take the picture <laughs> of that. That would have been because America is very conservative, you know. Smoke your Marlboro after sex, you know. But it's, you know, very funny. But uh, I learned a lot. I learned about uh, corporations. I learned about direction where corporations go. What it needs really to have focus on a campaign where. You cannot change anything, actually. You have to stay in that frame and still actually find the creativity to find something new. So this was leading me into art, in my art, because in 2003, I discovered that Richard Prince, one of the most famous uh, contemporary artists in America, was actually uh, appropriating my photographs of Marlboro. He removed the, the Marlboro sign and he made it to his art. And I discovered this in 2003 at the Biennale in Venice. And, um, uh, well, I was a bit shocked because that time he sold my photographs between $600,000 and $1.2 million. So we took a lawyer, we went against him, but no chance because mm -hmm. it's appropriation art. In America, there's a, it's a law, it's called fair use, so you can use. And he said, your picture is not my art, my concept is your art. So actually, uh, my lawyer said, forget it, you spend millions at the end and you don't get anything out because he always win. He had about over 200 cases and he always won, right? Right. And then, of course, I was frustrated, sit at home, and then uh, Hillary, she's a fantastic uh, artist, and uh, my wife, and uh, we came to the conclusion, uh, if I could produce a unique original art of my reproductional Art. Photography is a reproduction art, right? Only the yes. original is only the negative for the crown. And uh, I said, well, but how do you, how do you, what, what do you want to tell me? She said, you have to paint it with oil on canvas and then it becomes a unique piece. I mean, and you not copy your picture, you just uh, develop your picture on another kind of uh, material and another kind of uh, subject. I said, yeah, that's a good idea, but I cannot paint. I can never paint. And then she mentioned, well, in Chinese uh, philosophies, if you can't do something, you go in the cellar and you practice. <laughs> well, yeah, in 2003, I went in the cellar and started to practice. So when did you practice. come out of the cellar? Well, well, it was an awful time because I tell you, uh, even 2015, my picture looked like, uh, 2005, it looked like the kindergarten uh, where I live, we're trying to paint some horses, right? Uh, it was uh, perspectively, horses are very difficult to paint, mm. uh, people uh, very to paint, but then it got better and better and better and better, you know, after I don't know many, how, how many hundred meters of canvas, <laughs> how many uh, kilos of oil paints, you know, but uh, well, I came to the end and by 2007, they looked good, by 2008, I had a couple of really good ones, so they were uh, uh, kind of nearly looked like photographs, so it was photorealism called. 
And then we first didn't know what to do. Then we had the idea, pack it up in a ski bag and fly to New York and bring the cowboy back to where he comes from. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. So I went to Kokosian, you know, that's one of the big stairways. That's they representing uh, uh, Richard Prince. So they had quite a shock when I came. And I'm sure. first they didn't want to let me in with my ski bag. You know, it was June. And uh, what the hell is this guy walking around with a ski bag with this atomic on it? But then I made it. You know, I'm a good talker. So I made it in there. And then they were quite shocked. And they said, look, this is fantastic work, but we cannot do anything of you. This is a conflict of interest. And uh, But I have a friend, another gallerist. So he sent me to Mitchell Elgus and he saw it and... He looked at it after five minutes. He said, this is brilliant work. We do season opening. I had no idea what the season opening is because I never was in art before, right? So he said, well, then it's an end of August. That's when all the museum open, all the artists come, the whole world come. And New York is actually showing the new latest work. And so that's what we did. And actually from then on, things changed. Uh, Whitney Museum uh, took one of my paintings and created it also. I awarded it as the best painting of the year. And uh, then they discovered I have rock stars because all my pictures and then suddenly I was with a with a with a with a producer, with an editor, with a publisher, and they started to produce my first book. And so on one hand I was on the go with the cowboys and the other I, I did big uh, radio tours and talking all about my story about Bob Geldorf and Rolling Stones and all kinds of things. And um, so that moved me over. And I also got very interested because uh, Hillary is uh, Chinese, born in Singapore. I spent a lot of time in Singapore and discovered uh, Taoist Griddle Opera, who only performs for God, Ghosts, and Titus. Uh, actually, human beings are not allowed to watch, but I discovered them. I followed them around. I became a member of them. And actually, through this uh, story, then I ended up in, in Thailand. Okay. In 2013, uh, I was uh, following uh, this kind of troops because Thailand was very good for them because the Thai government never wanted to change actually their culture, their philosophy. They lived in small villages, actually like Chinese people lived a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And they were still had these little performances of actors and of musicians. And uh, the only thing you find left was in Hong Kong through the Hungry Ghost Festival. But Mao Zedong in China has wiped out all this. Everything was culture because this was a threat. You mm-hmm. Everything you believe in was a threat, right? Yeah, and then this, uh, well, I, I, in the meantime, I was well established. I had museum exhibitions, I had galleries selling our art. So we, we were quite well off also financially, well, not rich, but, you know, at least we could live from it. And Well, there was this incident uh, in Thailand where I uh, suddenly stumbled on a bridge over a girl who was covered with a piece of fabric and uh, she was begging and I put some Thai butt into her can and then she took the fabric away and I was deeply shocked because I faced in a terribly burned, burned face. I mean, white eyes, terribly looking. I saw her body was kind of burned and I was totally shocked. Mm. And I tried to talk to her and while I speak a couple of words of Thai, but uh, she didn't reply really. And there was a gentleman passing by and said, oh, sir, you don't speak Thai with her. You have to speak Khmer. She's a Cambodian. By the way, she's a begging doll. They burned her purposely mm. that she makes more money. This shocked me even more. I mean, mm. you know, you hear all these stories, right? But then you're standing in front of a child. For me, she was 
looked like a child, even I discovered after she's 13 years old. Mm. But you stand there and it is, you get the shivers. I have two children myself. Mm. I mean, there's this movie going up in your, in your brain. And I said, this is not acceptable. I, I cannot do that. So the next day I found somebody who could translate and she told me her story. Her name is Wei. And with three years, uh, her father is a rice farmer in Cambodia. He was in in, in depth and they couldn't pay back the money. So the only way uh, there were six or seven kids that they were saying he's tried to sell off his daughters, but nobody wanted them. So he took a blowtorch and burned her face and her body. And that's how he was able to selling her to an old woman. And she sold her on to the wedding syndications in, in Thailand, right? And so I brought her back to, to Cambodia. Uh, I smuggled her across the border in Poi Pet and uh, brought in an orphanage. And there I learned that uh, that time it was about 250 to 300 children, mainly girls, who were smothered with uh, acids and uh, burned and uh, uh, then be sold into the backing syndication. Mm. And I said to Caroline Cox, she is the, the, the owner of the orphanage, she, she said, where are these children? I mean, where did this come from? He said, well, if you really want to know where they come from, why don't you go to the dump site outside of uh, Phnom Penh and uh, you will discover some there, And but what you will discover there is worse than whatever you had in mind. So two days later, I started to be there. I started to live there. I rented a shed, dirty, stinky. I was helping them to, you know, go to their rotten rubbish every day to find pet bottles and leftover foods. And uh, uh, it, it was, it was I don't know what it really was or what it really triggered in me. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, we're so far away from this kind of reality. I live in Switzerland. My children in Switzerland. You live in England, mm. right? We have mm. something like this we cannot even imagine. When you have to live in there, you people all sick, you have malaria, you have dengue, you have nothing to eat, you 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 undernourished, you know, women have no milk for their babies. Uh, uh, and what do they do? I mean, they're selecting all this rubbish and they maybe make 50 cents a dollar a day where one kilo of rice is already a dollar a day. Not talking about money to see a doctor or buy medication, mm. or not even having money to send children to school. So... You do what you can in those situations, and that's what they can do, is try to get by by what waste other people have thrown out. And you lived on that. How long did you live on Well, on I, on I spent nearly, nearly a year living uh, there. Then also I ventured out into the slums because we had certain people moved from the waste hill into the city, into the slums, right? And then there they were very vulnerable to child prostitution, prostitution, slavery, you know, and actually the whole uh, economy in, in, in Cambodia is built on slavery. I mean, 1.9 million working, mm. women working in textile factory, they produce the garments for us, right? With 11, 14 cents an hour, it makes 40, $50 a month. Uh, today, now it's a bit higher, it's $80, $100, but you can not survive usually out of a, of, a, of a family and they have a lot of kids like eight or 10 or 12 people is one person working bringing home 40 50 dollar mm. uh, that's not enough to live and well it's uh, it's also not enough to die you know it's another thing it's like kind of they, they were they, they were all champions in surviving going into the forest and shaking down uh, ants nests and eat the eggs of them uh, lizards uh, beetles uh, with what little they have right but it's a very very poor 
society, uh, illiteral, not educated, and they suffer from the time of the Red Khmer. And that's still deep, 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 deep in, in their feelings and in their culture, right? So you started the organization and actually used a lot of your own finance to fund the organization and to feed a growing number of people that you identified in rural areas that were really suffering. Tell us a little bit more about the transition from where the organization started to where it is now, which is an incredible journey over a relatively short period of time. Um, well, what, you, what, what you do is, you know, you... you I don't know if, if it's your good heart or, or what it is, but you cannot accept the situation, right? And mm-hmm. I come, we come with our knowledge, and then first you want to improve, right? And uh, I start to realize me buying uh, 9,000, 10,000 kilo of rice, uh, buying 1,000 cans of milk powder and uh, 7,000 liter of water, clean water. It's not a solution. It's just adding something to them, but they're not moving forward, mm. right? So after about eight months, I stopped that and I started taking care about the children because the children, this is really what hurts you. Right. They're even happy. They even play. They giggle when they're in this environment. But the reality where they really are in is horrifying. It's not humane that you have to live there. And then I took over 280 children. I was buying uh, school uniforms, sneakers, uh, uh, rucksacks. You know, I was building several tuk-tuks because I had to drive them to town and to the school. But then at the school, the teacher didn't want to take my children because they were stinking like rubbish hills. Right. They were smelly, dirty. You know, we don't have water, really. Right, mm. and uh, so I thought uh, maybe if I can clean them. So I was building a laundry, and uh, I was buying two sets of uh, school uniforms. I was washing one, and the other one we wearing, and the next day they could use the fresh one. Right? I organize things with soaps we can wash and clean and hygienic. You know, it's a it's a very important part, right? But then I had to pay for each child because the teacher in Cambodia, if you don't pay, you can't go to school, right? Even if it's a public school. Uh, teachers also making only 40 bucks a month, so they cannot live. So they take the money from the children and from the parents. If you pay, you learn. If you don't pay, you don't learn. And then after another four months, I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is not going to work at all because I'm close getting now to 70 years of age. How long can I support these children? Besides, I start to realize the teachers, they hardly were able to speak and read and write their own language. Right? <laughs> not talking about a, a foreign language. So I said, this is totally waste. This education is waste. You know, they go two years, three years, and then they just learn by heart. One and one is two, and two and two is four, but don't ask them anything else, right? Mm. So my idea is, what can I do that these parents become in charge? So I asked them, where are you from? They said, oh, yeah, we came from 60 kilometer north, south, here. I said, do you have land? They said, no, 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 no. It's been taken away by the government, you know, land grabbing, or we have lost it because we're in debt. I said, is there anybody there? Yeah, they said, we have an uncle, we have an auntie. So I was char- chartering uh, trucks and I was uploading uh, 10, 15 families, right? So 60, 80 people. And then we're driving 80 kilometers to the north. And then I started up there to build uh, pig farms, uh, fish farms, chicken, 
vegetables, right? And uh, hey, me, okay, crazy. I'm a fantastic guy, you know, Swiss, we know everything, you know, <laughs> we know how to build up agriculture, right? And it worked fantastic the first two months. And suddenly the fish started to die. They were swimming upside down, right? And uh, I didn't know what they have. They had all these white spots. And then my pigs couldn't walk anymore, right? So they died. They were about 50 kilos and they died or we had to slaughter them, right? And my chickens wouldn't lay egg at all. There was just no eggs, right? There was a funny chicken anyway, a long leg. And, you know, I don't know what it was, but that was the chicken was what's available, right? And then I brought the seeds from Switzerland, you know, fantastic, organic, carrots, uh, leeks, all this. Oh, we were planting and planting, but nothing grew. My, my, my carrots, they were about five millimeter, right? So a totally disaster, a totally failure. Uh, and I felt so bad, not because we were spending all our family assets in there, because these people had hope in mm. me that there is something moving forward and nothing worked. So I was devastated. So I was writing emails in Switzerland to the agriculture department and said, hello, here is an artist and I tried to become agriculture engineer in Cambodia, but nothing works. So one guy, he felt- I, think, I need help. Well, he felt, I think, very sorry for me. He said, oh, this is a poor guy. So he invited me for a coffee. So I told him my picture and tell him my story. And then he was very nice to me. I said, uh, Mr. Schmidt, I, I checked you out on the internet. You are an amazing artist, but I think to become an agriculture engineer, you have to learn a little bit more. <laughs> I said, well, I discovered this myself. I said, can you help me? He said, well, it's difficult, but I, I will send you two of my agriculture engineers. Uh, one is from the vegetable fields. The other is about uh, animals. And he, he he will look at you. And he came down there and his hairs were like standing up straight in the sky. You know, he said, Hannes, there is no nitrogen in your soil. I mean, you have to compost, you have to fertilize. It takes you three to five years till you can grow your carrots because this, this soil is empty. Generally in the tropics, uh, that is not really vegetable, vegetable, uh, because uh, there is always red soil, there is a lot of minerals, and it's not working, right? And then he said, like you pigs, they have a genetic defect. That's why they die. You know, it's not like us, we are aware of genetics, we cross mother cells, father cells, you know, uh, correctly. And then he said, your, your chickens, is, is, is the meat tender? I said, no, it's like tough, like, I don't know what. But the Cambodians love soup chicken, so they, they, they cook this for eight hours, you know, because the meat is still on the bone, you know. So he said, well, yeah, this is a semi-wild chicken. The French using this type of chicken to cook the cocoa because yes, you can cook it for eight hours, right? So it was like devastating. So I said, Bobby, I said, well, we have to start really from the beginning. We start to fertilize mm. uh, with the genetic. We have to bring genetic material. So I was like flying with the pig sperms from Switzerland in my suitcase, smuggling it in the Divea body lotion pads because, you know, if they catch you, you know, you cannot bring genetics material from one country to the other, right? I don't so even explain that. We, well, we started to build up uh, the genetic uh, standards. It went well. We started up to build the hygienics, right? And I took 12 families from the, from the slums on the wayside. And we started a little farm, 4,000 square meter, where they had pigs, they had uh, fish, they had everything. So I centralized everything. So I was buying nine hectares of land, 60 kilometers in the north, right? And that's how we started off. And uh, that happened in 2014, 2015. We were still playing around. 2016, some things worked. Uh, uh, fish were still dying. So we stopped actually the fish, right? And 
And then I start to realize the only way for these people or for this country to go forward is economically. Mm. I mean, if they are able to produce something, not just for themselves, to help, you mm. help yourself. Mm. That's not enough. But you need to have money that your children can go to school. You, you have to invest things. You maybe need to see a doctor. You, you, you know, also the economical growth of mm. countries, depending on what people can do. Fine. If you only have like two big companies, uh, it's too big to fail, right? And so we were building up a system and my idea came very quickly that I have a period of time, five, seven years to become an NGO. I get the money for free. I don't have to pay back. I don't have to pay interest. And sometimes you not even have to tell what you do with that money, right? You just report. Which is some of the challenge, of course. Right, of course. And then as I got after five, seven years, if I invest this money, like an investment, precise, make analyzes, marketing analyzes, uh, art work with, uh, with scientific people, you know, like uh, produce fish in a different mm-hmm. level, economically uh, uh, start taking care about energy, about environment, about water, right? We should reach the point where we can become a social enterprise. So the social enterprise would be still fantastic because we still would have benefits from the government. We still have tax exemption, VAT exemption and import benefits, right? But we could start to take maybe maybe money Money, uh, where we could maybe in a longer period of time we could actually pay back. And then altogether it gives me 15, 18 years. And in the meantime, I can build up the education level. First of all, I can integrate. I have a school. I build a school. I have 350 kids in my school. And uh, we have an international curriculum. So very same standard like you have in London or you have here in Switzerland. They're the poorest of the poorest children. But I understood very quickly I have to give them the best education I can because when they're becoming uh, out of school and this is in 15 years the world has changed Mm -hmm. it's not enough that you can read and write and then mainly these people they can read but they don't even understand what they read so we need a wider spectrum of this whole so that's how I was building up this thing and then after this 15 years 18 years we become an enterprise. Yes. The different, say the carpentry shop, the fishery, you know, the vegetables, the hotel, everything I was building, becoming enterprises. But there again, it doesn't make sense if I create enterprises who have to be run by foreigners. Absolutely. So in the meantime, I have to build up through vocational training so that they are becoming a certain standard. They cannot be entrepreneurs because they missed all their education. Mm. They can be good mechanically. They have their their things, but they have limits. But in the meantime, I'm building up the next generation. We very well educate the kids, right? But then also I need to build up small corporations where they can go different ways. Not everybody can go to an university. So we need big corporations that can do a professional apprenticeship, mm. right? So this is actually the system of Smiling Echo. And I must say, uh, from 2018 on, where things started slowly to work till today, it became very, very far. We have 255 employees. We have the same standard contracts like in Switzerland, health insurance, accident insurance, pension fund, family support, child support, right? We have fair wages, Right. Um, and we only have about five percent of foreign coaches. I think that's real key to it, Hanas, is that you bring people in to support the development of Cambodians so that they in the longer term have the full responsibility and the ownership of all of their projects, which is really key um, in order for them as a, as a, as a community to be able to thrive. Um, and I think what you've done as an organization so incredibly well yourself of course by 
just going out to people and going, this isn't working. I don't have the expertise. How can you help me? And just being, as you've always been, really curious and, and also being really aware that you don't have the answers and asking others to help. And I've recently seen your report for those people that want to have a look at it. It's amazing in terms of the amount of um, collaboration with universities and corporate organizations who provide the support and provide uh, so much data that just amplifies the effort that you've put in, you and everyone else at Smiling Gecko and the work that you're doing. Um, and of course, it's all been mapped with the SDGs as well. So I've seen how all of your projects map to the sustainable development goals Completely. and the work that you're doing in that area. I just want to touch on one thing, which is COVID-19. Uh, How's that impacted the organization? Well, I tell you, uh, I was there. I went uh, January, January 2020. I went down there. I only wanted to stay a couple of weeks. And uh, 22nd of February, uh, a tsunami hit us. And I think the worst tsunami I could never imagine. Suddenly from one day to the other, uh, the factories closed. So I would say uh, 1.9 million people lost their income without any kind of compensation, right? The airports closed, Singapore closed, Malaysia closed, Thailand closed, Europe closed. I mean, uh, Cambodia, 80% of the GDP comes from tourism Mm. and uh, garment manufacturing. From one day to the other, this was all gone. I mean, we were all in shock. Besides, we got hit. We got hit also around us. First, uh, all the young people came back into their hometowns, home villages, right? They never had actually much to eat before. Now they had even less. There was no money. They had debts, you know, mm. uh, you know, microcredits. We invented it, you know, wonderful. It started in Africa. It was in a good sense. But then what happened in Asia was that big banks took over the microcredits, institutions, private people. 40% interest is on microcredits. That's average. It can go even higher, right? Mm. So these are small credits. And people have no money. They take two, $300, $400 maybe to pay hospital bills or do anything. They can never pay back mm. or they pay back little. But now there was no money anymore. So the banks, the institutions, microcredits, they just took their land away. You know, we had thousands and thousands of farmers. They lost their livelihood because... They took the rice paddies away because mm. they couldn't pay. And sometimes only for a couple of hundred dollars, they just took it away. There was no protection for that. Then the people got sick. Strange enough, uh, in about uh, end of March, young people started to die in Cambodia, mm. 25, 30, 35. It seems that the old stay not so much affected it. But then what would happen? Well, they already had three, but then they were 35, they had three, four, five children. Suddenly, the children had no parents, so they were living with the grandparents. Mm. And then, end of April, uh, May, May, beginning of June, the old people started to die. So suddenly, we had to deal with children who had no parents anymore, and maybe some of their relatives, they were far 200 kilometers in the south and the north because they're all moving around where they can make some, some money, some work, right? And then we start to realize they have nothing to eat anymore. So we stopped completely our big production, chicken production, fish production, vegetable production. We stopped. We have shops in the, in the, in Phnom Penh. We stopped everything and we started to give it away. We had, we looked like, uh, uh Africa, you know, I had tracked load of food, uh, rice, everything, and we're driving into the villages and we 
had to feed these people, gave a little bit of money for medication, gave medication away, and we turned from one day to the other from an economical-driven kind of a project in a humanitarian project. Mm. That's the only thing, because why did we do that? First of all, we had to do it. You know, you cannot have the people around you suffer. Second of all, we start to realize when they have nothing anymore, they move away. You know, they take the children and they move anywhere. They go anywhere. They go in the city because they think that it's much better. So we have invested a lot of money in education, in our school and everything. And at the end, we're losing all our kids, mm. right? Because the parents don't understand that they somehow have to stand this crisis out, right? And it is not over yet. It actually still, now we have the next part. We have like uh, set number three, you know, suddenly the mutated virus is there. I mean, actually, Cambodia get hit now more than they ever hit before. Right. The government has always put this under the cover. We only had a 300 infections over one year and uh, there is nothing. And the only ones who infected are foreigners, right? This game is over, right? But what happened? The Chinese moved out of it, right? Uh, a lot of the investors who were there in the factories, they moved out of it. And in the meantime, they're building up Africa. So I don't think that the garment factory is coming back into that extent. Now, mm. what do you do when you have... 60%, 70% of the population who is not educated. What else do they want to do than just mechanical cheap work, right? And they do the cheap work for us. Actually, all these women paying the price for what we can buy cheap clothes later on, cheap jeans and T-shirts, whatever. And we should actually ask ourselves, do we need so many jeans, so many T-shirts? Is that really necessary? No, nobody talks about in environmental damage where we do to our uh, garment industry. This is like crazy, you know, mm -hmm. acids, uh, dyes, uh, fabrics, uh, planting cotton. You know, this is the worst you can really plant, right? You can call it ecological or, or whatever you want. It doesn't change that we need all this water uh, while we always direct our our goals against animals, you know, the cows and uh, whatever they they have. But I mean, if you really look into detail at the agriculture sector, they, they, there's not any any better. You know, mm. now we're going to produce energy out of soya. How absurd is that? Right. So I mean, you start to realize a lot of things who really not really are working. Right. Uh, there's another thing. Since 20 years, we're investing billions. I mean, UN is investing 2.5 billion, a trillion every year, dollar, into the SDGs. So that means since 2015 we do this. Where have we really come? Where far mm -hmm. have we go? But we have forgotten actually everything what's grassroots. We always talk about the upper part. There are a couple of guys who can go have the money to go to universities. But on the bottom has really nothing moved, not in a substance where it should have moved with the amount of money we invest. And now when is uh, I was on the calls at the, at the Davos things now in January, you know, virtually. And the big thing is that actually the third world has been booked back 10, 15 Yes. Yeah. I mean, have we then actually wasted all this money we invest and why have we lost it? Because we never invested a penny into this infrastructure, not roads and buildings, mm. in the infrastructure of human capital. There is no comprehensive schools, none of them. This is all nothing. These children are not prepared to facing the real world when they come out of school. Mm -hmm. And this is a disaster. Not even the people coming out of the universities are really actually fit for life. 
they have a theoretical understanding. They have no practical kind of uh, kind of uh, uh, understanding at all at the end. I see this with our architects, with our engineers. We have the local ones. They're nice guys, but uh, it's they, they cannot stand on their own feet. And you ask to yourself, should we change? Maybe we should learn from COVID mm. that there was something not really what we wanted to approach. But there was one thing about uh, COVID that's transformed your business model a little bit in terms of looking at where you bring uh, kind of success into the organization in terms of thinking more locally rather than globally. Well, you know, I had panic. I tell you, I was four months in panic. The day and night I was out there helping people. And I started to worry because we're living from donations. And uh, for me, it was very logical. If a crisis hit us like this, where do we still get funds? Mm-hmm. I mean, does family still have 50 bucks, 100 bucks to give to us? No, they don't have. Uh, middle-sized corporations, well, they have other problems. Instead of losing, they cannot give me 10,000 bucks when they, on the other hand, has to uh, send their workers away. So I started really to panic, right? Mm-hmm. And I said with my team and said, we have to question everything we do. We have to look into everything we do. Are we on the right track? Are we economically, are we, can move? Can we sustain with that? What do we have to do? And we kind of really turned everything upside down because before we were living on international tourists, I said, guys, we have to go on national tourism. So we started a new advertisement campaign via Facebook, via this, via that, inviting people, bringing people out there. And suddenly we became a kind of a small heaven for for expats and for the very wealthy to come to us. We have a pool, we have yoga, we have a spa, we have a very good restaurant, uh, we have an environment who is also educational. And uh, today our hotel is very successful. We have an average of 100 guests a day. We're probably the most uh, occupancy-rated uh, uh, hotel in ecotourism. We are in newspapers, in magazines down there, and we were able to switch around. The same is with our production, right? We are we are organic, but organic products are expensive. Mm. The only way we can sustain is that we enlarge our production. But for this first, I need another investment to uh, extend my, my, my vegetable fields. But this is three to four years I have to invest into other. Agriculture. It doesn't matter, fish, uh, chicken, whatever it is, mm. it, it's not switching on and off. You know, we're not producing with machines, something. It's nature. Yeah. And we have to be careful what we do. Uh, as on the organic side, we don't use any chemical pesticides. We don't use any kind of, of things. Uh, we try to be as natural as possible we can. And we get hit, right? Uh, I lost all my pigs. There was over 200 pigs we lost in January 2021 because we got hit by the African swine fever, yeah, right? Really? So, we had to kill yeah, there was 300 million pigs had to be slaughtered in Asia and we got hit so can you imagine I only would have focused on pigs we would have been dead now we're building it back up again right very carefully I have to bring new genetic material again we have to build all this up but this takes us two three years till we are back on about 200 mother cells right and uh, we, we need you see the problem is the people are lacking on proteins, right? And we have the luxury here to live more and more on vegetable proteins, you know, because we don't want to eat meat anymore for any kind of reasons. Mm. And then the, the crazy thing is the most valuable thing of our cows and pigs and everything we have, we feed to the dogs and cats, you know, liver, intestines, you know, thing. we don't eat this anymore. No, I remember as a child eating liver and bacon. Yeah, yeah. well, this there is the go. highest volume of 
horrendous, <laughs> right? Down there, they eat everything from the pig. You know, they even the the, the 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 inside of the colon and of the stomach. But we have to start thinking different when we talk about the third world. They cannot become vegan and vegetarian. It's not possible mm. because there is just not enough there, and and the economy is not built strong enough in agriculture to produce all these proteins. Well, we can use spirulina, we can use marengo trees, but this is this is little. Uh, I cannot feed a nation with that, right? Besides, it's also a matter of taste, you know. Well, hopefully, Hanas, with the things that you've put in place over the next four or five years, there'll be a generation of people within Cambodia who can do this for themselves. And the responsibility that you hold and that you give so much to them, um, and it sounds like over the next five or ten years, they'll be able to do that for themselves because you've set up such a good model, which is helping a community to help itself, which I think is really key to this. So um, I'd just like to, I guess like to kind of bring this to a close. And I wrote down before all the different things that um, that I think uh, of when I when I when I speak to you and a photographer, an artist, an activist, an adventurer, an innovator, a troublemaker, a storyteller, a truth finder, a visionary leader, and uh, and and a human with many many cat lives. We haven't gone into the amount of times that your life has been at risk, and still you have incredible energy and passion. Um, and I'm so excited to see how the journey of smiling. Gecko continues to engage and inspire others. And I wonder, out of all of those uh, words that I've used to describe you, which one for you fits most, Hanas? I'm just a regular guy. I'm just a, a regular human being. <laughs> I always say I'm not an adventurist. I'm, I'm not this. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a financial guy. I, 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 I just, I think I have a very good understanding for the simple things and uh, because that's how I grew up. I didn't grow up from the top down. I grew up from the bottom up. And uh, I think that's very important for me. Uh, when you are working in a country like this and you have to explain things 100 times, 200 times, like you normally have to do to your children, you know, you cannot explain on the three-year-old, they, they come again, they listen to the same story, mm -hmm. to the same story again, uh, that you never lose your respect uh, towards the people. Uh, it's not their fault that they grow up there, that they are born there, that they don't have a chance to be educated, right? It's more our form, our responsibility. And uh, I tell everybody who works with us, on top of it in our school, that is the children. And then there is the children again. And there comes the children again. And then after 10 times children again, <laughs> then it's us. And the same thing with our workers, right? For us, uh, we have to see how even in the limitation they have, to bring this piece by piece and it goes up and it falls down again, it goes up and it falls down again. Never lose the respect to who they are. It's not their fault. And if they would be as good as we are, it would not be a need for us mm. to be there, right? I think that's very important to understand. Thank you so much for sharing your curiosity and your openness and your ability to fail and learn. Um, it's been fascinating for me. So uh, I wish you all the best. And for people who are listening who want to find out more about the organisation, then you can look online uh, for Smiling Gecko and you can find out all the ways in which perhaps you or your organisation can get involved in this amazing community development organization. Uh, thank you, Hannah. Thank you very much, Joe. I'll yes, see you thank soon. You. Thank you very much.
an incredibly fascinating life Hannes has lived and indeed continues to live. It's always worth taking a moment to consider and tell your own story, as you never really know where it could take you. One minute you can find yourself trapped in a jungle and the next you could be backstage with some of music's biggest ever rock bands. Who knows? A massive thank you to both Joe and Hannes for recording their conversation for us. As Joe mentioned, if you wanted to find out more about Hannes's amazing work with Smiling Gecko, you can visit smilinggecko.ch. If you would like to find out more about Impact and the work we do, please visit impactinternational.com. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, take care. Hey.